more like last gen, am I right? This week, NextGen has announced their final hurrah. Plus, so he meets with the premier, the city announces a surplus, and of course, there was news about parking. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 212. Mac, I think we should give a quick update on Bullard Count 2023. How many Bullards are left on 102F? Well, there's uh, a few left that separate the bike lane from the driving lane, but where you want them, you know, in the middle of the bike lane so that cars know they shouldn't enter, there is now one left. As a real crying shame that there's only one left, we'd love to see more. But in the absence of more Bullards, we can give you at least three times the remaining Bullards in Rapid Fire Jokes. The NDP have committed to providing free access to prescription birth control if elected this spring. Leader Rachel Notley invited Premier Daniel Smith to debate her on the merits of this plan, but Smith, considering her preferred curriculum, decided to abstain. The drivers operating DATS vehicles in the city of Edmonton could strike this week, depending on the outcome of a union vote. DATS drivers currently make around $2.50 less per hour than other ETS drivers. With no resolution forthcoming, the city is exploring all options, including requiring all drivers to be students between 16 and 18 years of age to take advantage of the lower minimum wage. The Alberta government has finally received its supply of children's pain medication from Turkey. The medicine, which typically retails for around $7 per bottle, cost the government of Alberta a mere $14 per bottle to procure. Now that the wave of flu and the supply crunch has passed, the Alberta government does not plan to make the medicine available, but rather stockpile it for future use. When asked if the government thought they erred in the attempted procurement, Health Minister Jason Nixon was quick to say that there could be other uses for the medication. Later this week, they plan to drop a few pills down an orphaned well and see if that cures the problem. Speaking Municipal is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can find it at thewellendowedpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Mac, I feel like our first guest is uh, you bringing the new friend back home to Thanksgiving. Today, it is Taproot celebrating a brand new employee in Colin. That's right. We've been recruiting over the last uh, month or so, as people who follow us on LinkedIn would know. And uh, we're really thrilled that we've been able to recruit Colin Gallant to be our new reporter for Taproot Edmonton. So welcome to Speaking Municipally, Colin. Hi, Mac. Hi, Troy. Thanks for having me. Well, Colin, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? What should they know about you as our new reporter? That's a good start is that I am the new reporter. Uh, My name is Colin Gallant and uh, I used to live in Calgary. I'm originally from Nova Scotia and my family lives here in Edmonton. So I've been here for a little over a year now. I've been a journalist since 2013. I've written and worked at Avenue Magazine, the Calgary one. Beatroot Magazine, which was an Alberta-wide music publication, and I was the co-editor-in-chief of the Calgary Journal during my time at MRU. So wait, did you just say Beatroot? Oh, you, yeah. I, I, I was hoping we'd tap into this thread. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, are you just like going for the journalistic equivalent of like an EGOT where it's just like all these sort of like vegetable puns and magazine names? Is that the goal here? Uh, um, 
I don't know that that is equivalent to an EGOT. I mean, I'd have to get an award <laughs> for that, but I, I did think it was funny. And we stylized it Beetroot, capital B, E-E-A-T, capital R, O-U-T-E, and I've had a really hard time not capitalizing the R in Taproot. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure Matt will give some editorial notes when those come through. You mentioned that you have been in Edmonton a while, so I think the first thing needed to establish your Edmontonian credentials is the quintessential question we have to ask of all of our guests on this podcast. What do you think of the Talistome? Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I was just in a car going past and the light caught it and I looked at it and I said, oh, cool. Because driving around Edmonton, no offense, Edmontonians, can sometimes be a little bit drab. And uh, I thought this was a welcome break from the used vacuum stores and freeways that you see in Edmonton. I don't share the criticism of its cost or its aesthetics that seem to be popular online. I mean, I did admit that I used to live in Calgary and we were home to the giant blue ring, uh, which is known formally as traveling light. And uh, that was a greater expense and uh, poorer aesthetic than the Talisman. So <laughs> I would say that it really doesn't shake me to look at it. One thing about it is that it does what public art is supposed to do creates conversation. It makes people have strong opinions. And I think that's worthwhile. Uh, I think it's interesting to watch. I don't hold any strong opinions about it myself, frankly, but I, I love to watch it. Well, that's refreshing, at least, um, and correct uh, on almost all points. So, um, Mac, good hire. You, you did well here. This was our defining question. Yeah. So let's talk about what you did this week at Taproot, because uh, there was an article published that you wrote about Edmonton's NextGen. So what was the summary of what happened with NextGen? Yeah, so the reason we're writing the story is because NextGen is wrapping up this spring. It's formally dissolving in May, but uh, the last chance that Edmontonians will have to interact with it, chances rather, will be at the final Pechacucha night at the end of this month, and then a final City Jam party at the end of next month. And we wanted to get into the journey of next gen and why it's ending why it's ending now specifically well i thought it might be ending because it didn't have a purpose anymore like aside from hosting events that seemed to be all that pkn was about but you heard from the people you spoke to that maybe had more to do with burnout. I would say that it's a mix of the two, but I would put a bit of an asterisk on the idea that it doesn't have a purpose anymore. And I would say that what was said to me by the sources was that they felt they'd kind of fulfilled their purpose at the time that NextGen was formed, Edmonton's NextGen. There was a lot of discourse about young people leaving Edmonton and there was a lack of representation of young people on things like boards and in the business community. And looking around today, I think there's ample evidence that there is an increased amount of youth, as they define it, 18 to 40 year olds uh, in those spaces. But there is burnout. Having left the city in December 2020, becoming a nonprofit society, it was an entirely volunteer run operation from then on. Prior to that, it was a mix of volunteerism and some participation from different levels of city, and also one full-time city employee, Christine Causing, who has kind of been the longest-serving person at NextGen. And then once they spun off into a nonprofit, they didn't have a full-time person anymore, and it became entirely volunteer-run, which I think will tire you out a lot faster than if it's your day job. For most of us, NextGen is kind of just that. They're the PKN people and the City Jam people. What was actually 
the point of NextGen, according to NextGen or your sources? Initially, NextGen did make specific policy recommendations to council after its pilot project. There were nine specific recommendations, and uh, some of those were followed through on, like providing public Wi-Fi in certain spaces and creating a cultural plan for the city. So those are pretty tangible results, but that is also just the very beginning of what NextGen became. I would qualify it as not a secret society in the way that the Skull and Bones Society is, or the Illuminati or something like that. But there was a camaraderie and a community that was built of people who did a lot of networking with one another and boosting of one another so that people would feel more empowered to do things that would make their city a better place instead of just wishing that these things would happen. So uh, it formed a community of people who you can see who's got NextGen on their LinkedIn have some influence today over the course of the 18 years that it was an organization. I remember the Wi-Fi recommendation and and I sort of thought that was, you know, originally what NextGen was intended to do. I, I see in the story that uh, former counselor Kim Cruschel said that it was never really intended to make recommendations to council. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, although that might be her recollection. And it was also, of course, an, an initiative of council for several years, and Councillor Andrew Knack also worked on it. But yeah, as you say, they kind of moved away from those recommendations and really became about events. And, you know, the events were pretty significant. It was the first one in Western Canada to host PKN. And PKN for a time was, you know, one of the things for, you know, people who wanted to be engaged and connected to attend. Uh, like PKN was a pretty big deal. Maybe it still is. I've gotten old. I'm pretty close to the edge of, of what they define as next gen. Uh, so I haven't been to a PKN in a while, actually. But I remember that it was pretty significant for the community that it was able to reach. I know PKN reached me and I still think it is true that I am the only PKN speaker to have their talk banned from being published online. Claim to fame, Troy. To some extent, I wonder if the success and lo the longevity of NextGen has been really about this sort of like breeding ground for maybe next generation politicians, maybe it's for board members, and maybe that was the point. But it always felt to me that NextGen, in the same way that school board is the first stepping stone to being a provincial or city politician, NextGen was the first stepping stone to being an influencer in local policy. Do you think that's fair? I think there might be some truth to that. I think another thing I've been thinking about a lot with this story is that, you know, all of the organizations and even, you know, social networks and things that exist today didn't really when NextGen got started. And so if you wanted to get involved, if you wanted to meet like-minded people, if you wanted to be able to talk about, you know, politics and that kind of stuff, NextGen was one of the few places you would go to. And, you know, it kind of grew up alongside social media back when Twitter wasn't a cesspool and the sort of online offline experiences, you'd go to PKN, but then you'd have all the online conversation about it on Twitter in between events, like they reinforced one another. And I think they really made the connections that people formed through PKN uh, a whole lot stronger. So, you know, I think there's some truth to the fact that it might've been this breeding ground, but maybe only because there was an absence of other organizations. I mean, now we have, you know, equal voice and a whole bunch of other things that just didn't exist at the time. Yeah. And if, if I may, Troy, I have kind of uh, an anecdote anecdote that didn't make it into the story that I think runs contrary to your point. Councillor Knack, he basically applied to be involved as part of the administrative committee before running for his first time, which he was not elected for, and he was rejected. Um, he, was, <laughs> he was not admitted for NextGen, so 
he still made it to council and then got to work on next gen, but it's not like he got to ride next gen to the council. So next gen has spun off into a nonprofit organization. And then about three years later, it's dissolving. I wonder how much the two are related. If NextGen was surviving based on the city's input, like you said, the city had staff time involvement, there was a full-time staff member. To what extent did you discover that NextGen might have been more city-run than volunteer organization? Like, was it an organization that was a passion project of people in the city? Uh, Another anecdote that didn't quite make it in is that uh, Christine Causing, who she was part of like a citizen representation for the task force and her position at the city was created because of her dedication and hard work on the task force. I mean, to me, Christine Causing is next gen, right? Like she has been the one consistent or was before, you know, left the city was the one consistent, reliable and and public face of the organization for most of its existence. And I think it, it must be really challenging when you don't have that that full time attention anymore for an organization to continue doing what it was doing before. I think so. And I think that it was a direct cause of some of the burnout that happened when they became a nonprofit. I don't think that these were undedicated people. I, I would say they were all incredible dedicated considering most of them are closer to 40 than 18, have families, have full-time jobs and demanding full-time jobs. We're talking leadership at more than 40 hours a week. I don't think it was a lack of dedication from volunteers at all that led to the end of NextGen. I think as they told me, and we haven't really gotten to yet, is that there hasn't been like a Gen Z replacement group that's come into play. Whereas NextGen, when it existed at the city, and especially as part of the millennial generation, younger people were joining all the time, and and they just didn't see that happen uh, after spinning off from the city and becoming a nonprofit. They're too busy on TikTok. So Max, uh, disparaging comments about our youth aside, (laughs) we had mentioned off the top, you know, what is NextGen? Understanding the role and even to some extent disagreeing about the role. Do you think that played a pretty large component in the eventual dissolution of NextGen. When I think about it, I think about people who are 18 through 40. And to be honest, I'm in that group. And I don't know that I have a strong connection to people who are 18 through 40. Maybe before Twitter existed, maybe before social media existed, it was harder to find groups of friends. But if I'm looking for people that I want to spend time with, that I want to vibe with, that I want to make positive change with, I don't usually use age as the primary criteria. And maybe it's just a generational thing. It doesn't have a home because it's a thing of its time. Well, Mac, you'll be relieved to hear that Troy mentioned Twitter and not TikTok in his uh, (laughs) comments there. But um, it's not unfair to call it a thing of its time. We waded into the idea that social media might be a piece of this in terms of next gen becoming a thing basically right before the social media age. I don't think that it's unreasonable to say that young people look for peers to be their sounding board or or a place to fit in. I think that we, we look for people like us in many ways when we create like social tribes. Uh, Troy, maybe you're just unique. I mean, the other, the other thing about it is that ever since the beginning, 18 to 40 has been an awfully big range 
18-year-olds and 40-year-olds have th- some things in common, but, you know, more so with the people around their age than with, you know, the, the people at either end of the spectrum. So I think that potentially has always been a little bit of a challenge. And if NextGen found a cohort of people that have all kind of grown up together, you know, that I think that could also be play a role in in in, uh, in how difficult it was for it to find new young people to, to volunteer. I don't think they're all on TikTok in a bad way. I just meant that, you know, TikTok is a place, you know, these kinds of social networks that exist now are places that these these folks go to first. Whereas, you know, NextGen kind of predated that for a lot of people. It was around before most people were on Twitter, for example. And so it might not have been the place they went to first. Yeah. And I would I would say even beyond that, <clears throat> we have nonprofits and volunteer-run organizations run by young people who might fall into the Gen Z category, or at least they're significantly younger than 40, that people told me in, in doing this story, they just didn't see groups like that at the time. Um, Paths for People came up. Uh, Climate justice edmonton Mm -hmm. uh that came up there there were a number of groups that came up that according to the people i interviewed were no equivalency to at the time that next gen was formed chriselle mentioned to me that the idea came to her at one night at a fundraiser at a mercedes-benz dealership and that looking around she saw no one under 40 and she was close to 40 herself at that time so not only was there no 35 year olds there were also no 18 year olds and i think uh, in her mind, that meant that the exclusion of this particular range of people meant that they had something in common and something to offer together. So you mentioned off the top about how, you know, NextGen has fulfilled its purpose because back then there weren't under 40s and now there are under 40s. To what extent does correlation equal causation here? Do you think NextGen deserves some credit for this or did NextGen just exist and also now we have 18-year-olds in politics? I think it's difficult to measure. I don't think that you can draw a graph about it. But some of the people who were involved in NextGen are the people who are younger than 40, who are serving on boards and who are in business. It's hard not to see a through line there when people go directly from NextGen into uh, other projects. It's complicated. I mean, the world is so much different than it was in 2005 in so many ways. I don't think there's one clear answer as to how much impact that NextGen had. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about uh, NextGen and to introduce yourself to our our listeners. We look forward to all the great reporting you're going to do for Taproot in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course, the winding down of NextGen doesn't really have any impact on city budgets. They've been a nonprofit organization separate from the city for a couple of years now. But the budget does have some extra dollars floating around. The city announced this week that there will be an $81.5 million surplus in 2022. That's right. This comes from a report that's going to council on March 14th. And these are the preliminary year-end financial results. And so they've projected that they're going to finish 2022 with, yeah, almost $82 million more than what they budgeted for. There's two primary reasons for that. Uh, The first is lower than budgeted costs for what they call financial strategies. And these financial strategies, this budget they have is for managing risk and providing flexibility. It basically sounds like a bit of a slush fund for things that will inevitably go wrong. Uh, And then the other one is personnel costs. And those were lower than expected, mainly because they had a whole bunch of unfilled vacancies. And of course, now they've put some restrictions in place on on hiring, so they haven't filled those up. So those are the two main reasons that there was a, a surplus this large. It would have been even higher had they not had an overspend on snow clearing. And that overspend was on top of 
you know, money that council had already approved earlier in 2022 uh, to, to boost the snow and ice control budget. I have a question here. Okay. You said most of this was due to, you know, this administrative risk fund uh, being a little bit ahead and that there's also like 18 million, you know, due to unfilled vacancies. We spent, it seems like six years at the end of last year, but it was only a few weeks at the end of last year debating the four-year capital and operating budgets. That was at the end of the year. Administration should have known, hey, we've had empty positions for the entire year. Maybe there's some additional money. Why is it that the 80 million extra dollars floating around wasn't floating around during budget time when we could have used it to, I don't know, for example, do the high level line? <laughs> you know, I think this is a good question. I imagine it's a question that some counselors will ask when when these preliminary numbers come up uh, on the 14th. Um, you know, there's probably some reasonable explanations from a financial point of view, you know, about these things. Maybe some of those costs and uh, and totals just weren't known until the end of the year or maybe even early this year once the accountants do their thing and get through there and look at those numbers. And, you know, I suppose another way to look at it is that this happens frequently. The last time the city had a deficit actually was 2018. And that one was also about, you know, higher fuel costs. So this financial strategies budget is is related, you know, to a lot of things. But one of the things it's used for is this uncertainty around how much fuel is going to cost, because as we know, it just varies quite a bit throughout the year. So, you know, usually there's a bit of a surplus at the end. And it's because the city is, you know, trying to administration is trying, I think, to to hedge a little bit on some of these, you know, risky things that are just too uncertain. Now, I think a fair question to ask is, is this too much of a risk mitigation fund? And and I imagine that's what we'll hear council talk about. So you've watched council for, you know, the better part of my entire life. <laughs> In your past experience, what does council do when they get $81.5 million? Is there going to be a mid-March spending spree coming forward? Or are they likely to just squirrel this away back in another rainy day fund? Or are we going to see tax reductions across the board? What's What's historically happened here? Well, historically, uh, what has happened is what will likely happen this time as well, that $80 million or 80, $82 million will get whittled down to maybe about $5 million that they can actually use. The rest of it will go to, yes, the rainy day fund called the Financial Stabilization Reserve. That's actually pretty important this time because it had fallen to about $68 million by the end of 2022. It's supposed to have a minimum balance of $122 million. So, you know, this surplus will mainly go to replenish the rainy day fund. That's important for, you know, uncertainty and things that might come up in the future. There's always, at the end of the year, things that didn't get done. So work that was previously approved for 2022 that just didn't happen for whatever reason, it gets carried forward into the 2023 budget. There's a big chunk of that that will happen with the surplus as well. And then, as I said, you know, there's always a small amount, a few million dollars that's left over. And that's for, you know, council to look at potentially when they do the spring uh, budget update. If they decide not to touch that, then it too will likely end up in the, um, the the stabilization reserve. Of course, there's always stuff that you can spend money on, but Mayor Sohi has made it clear there's a lot of things that he thinks that the province should be spending their money on, not city's money. Uh, the reasons for this are, you know, 
constitution and laws and <laughs> all those sorts of things, you know, division of responsibilities, crazy stuff like that. But he has sent several letters to the provincial government outlining the need for affordable housing, outlining the need for additional shelter space. Uh, he sent a pre-budget letter to the Alberta provincial government and didn't see a whole lot in the budget, as we talked about in the last episode. But now that we're recording this on Thursday, March 9th, it has happened. Mayor Sohi has actually met with Premier Daniel Smith. It's hard to believe this is their first meeting since she became the Premier, but it is. Councillor Carmel got to meet with the Premier about the budget before Mayor Sohi did. But they've now met, and after the meeting, uh, Mayor Sohi said that he was optimistic and said the province had committed to working with the city on its priority areas. But of course, there were no promises about timelines or budget amounts or anything like that. I suppose one positive takeaway here, Troy, is that at least they got Mayor Sohi's letters. I understand that uh, Jayoti Gondek down in Calgary, her letters asking for funding for downtown revitalization went missing somehow. Somehow they got lost. I think the really compelling thing that happened this week, though, was Mayor Sohi outlined in facts and figures exactly the shortfall that the city of Edmonton is seeing. Namely, that the city of Edmonton has less than half of the shelter spaces that Calgary has, despite having a roughly equivalent number of people sleeping rough per capita. And I think it's really important to ask those questions and ask, why exactly does that disparity between Alberta's two major cities exist? Especially in an election year, it's a good thing to ask. All we know about the meeting is that Premier Smith said the province would be an active partner in addressing issues of downtown safety, but they would do that, of course, through their Community Safety and Response Task Force and didn't commit to any new funding for shelter spaces. Of course, the Premier's commitments would be much easier to believe if they came with committed dollars as well. We really only have another couple months with which to get those commitments because should the government win uh, the election this spring, I expect we will not see a massive deluge of post-election dollars. That doesn't typically happen. No, I think that's probably a good prediction, Troy. There's definitely some dollars being found across the city, though. One place is in the EPS, which in a story you published this morning, talked about attrition with the Edmonton Police Service. Yeah, as part of the year-end financials that we talked about for the city, the Edmonton Police Service's year-end financials are also included in there. And uh, when I was reading the report, I noticed something that I kind of thought was interesting, and, and that is that Almost 100 sworn officers, so these are the, the folks who are on the force uniformed as opposed to civilian employees, almost 100 of them left the service in 2022. About half of them resigned and about half of them announced their retirement. Now, the service is about 2,000 people, so maybe 100 doesn't sound like a lot, but it's quite a bit higher than what we've seen in previous years. Usually, you know, the annual uh, loss or attrition rate for, for the service is about, you know, 50 to 60 people. So to jump up to 100 all of a sudden was, you know, pretty striking, I thought. And when I asked the police about this, you know, they said there's reason to believe that the attrition rate will remain similarly high in 2023. Did they give any indication of reasons for why this attrition rate was so suddenly high and expected to maintain such a high number? Well, there's always some attrition just because, you know, people move to other places in the country. Maybe they go work at a, a police service somewhere else where they're closer to family. Some have just retired outright, you know, they're at that age. And this is a, a challenge that the service has identified in recent years, actually, that, you know, their 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 workforce, like lots of workforces, is, is aging and getting closer to, you know, retirement age. And so they need to replenish those folks with younger officers. Uh, but the other thing the police told me is that 
some of these officers resigned and they cited when they did so a negative political environment that made their job less enjoyable. I can't imagine if there were any podcasts that were contributing to that environment. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they uh, quit because of speaking municipally, but you know, we talk about the police as an institution all the time. And we talk about the leadership of that institution. We talk about Chief McPhee and the, and the decisions that he and, and the, the commission and others are making. And you know, if you're a police officer trying to do police work, Maybe that gets to be uh, a bit frustrating, although maybe that's being a bit charitable because, you know, we've certainly heard police officers themselves over the years pushing back on some of the criticism that is, or not even criticism, some of the questions that are asked of of police and how we're spending that money, which is a really big chunk of our of our city's budget. And I got to say, um, we've been working so hard uh, to talk about defunding or detasking the police, transferring these budgets to other organizations. And we had always been coming at it from a perspective of governance, you know? City council needs to adjust these budgets. City council needs to pass policies. The police commission needs to do better at enforcing city council's wishes and holding police accountable. All these sorts of things that, you know, from our government wonk brains make sense. But Max didn't even consider. Let the EPS defund themselves. They seem to be doing a bang up job. (laughs) Well, they did get a whole bunch more money last year and are likely to get more money this year. The other thing that we learned this week related to police, of course, is that the funding formula that was supposed to come back in quarter one has been pushed back. And so now it'll be at least June before city council picks up that discussion. I'm very excited to see that funding formula come back later because if there's anything we know being pushed to the last minute to make a snap decision on police budgets has always gone very well and has led to the best result. (laughs) Indeed. That decision may be put off, but Always in Edmonton, there's the constant decision, the constant fight, the constant upkeep and maintenance for really what I would argue is the most important topic in the city of Edmonton. And this came to the forefront this week in a global news article titled, Otwell Residents Fear Parking Pressures Following Neighborhood Renewal. Mac, could you just refresh me on this story that has been published every month for the past 15 years? Well, pretty much what's happening here is the city is doing some neighborhood renewal work. And as part of doing that work, some of the on-street parking might go away. Quote, it just feels like the changes aren't being made by the people that live there, end quote. Yeah, I love that quote. You know, I have nothing against uh, Global News for publishing this. I think it's really interesting that they brought this to the forefront. I think it's kind of crazy that this conversation comes up again and again and again. I suppose one of the positive things about it coming up again is that Councillor Salvador, who is the councillor for the ward, was able to provide some explanation about, you know, why some of these parking spots might be removed. And she said it's to make room for drainage infrastructure and also to encourage slower driving, which should be a benefit to the people who live there because it'll be so much safer for the people who live in that area. There are tools, of course, that could come in here. We've seen this in in other neighborhoods and we've talked about that on the show before, like permanent parking or limited time parking and that sort of thing. But, you know, whenever I read these stories, Troy, I'm just always reminded that you do not own the parking in front of your house. (laughs) It's also very interesting to me that this is about Otwell, one who has been following speeds and traffic calming in the city of Edmonton will note that Otwell was one of the six pilot communities in the city of Edmonton that piloted the 40 kilometer an hour speed limit before it was made citywide. And the primary reason that Otwell had greater than 66% of their residents on board was because the design of the Otwell neighborhood with its wide, expansive roads and large corners led to speeding. 
the residents band together and agreed that they needed to combat speeding in the neighborhood. So I would imagine that the narrowing of roads and adding this infrastructure by removing parking is, in fact, just a long-standing community want. And perhaps, just perhaps speculating here, maybe the article that was published this week talking about residents' concerns does not include the sum total of the silent majority of residents in Otwell, who, through a preponderance of evidence over the past decade and a half, we know with actual reasonable certainty do support these measures. And this is why you listen to Speaking Municipally for this invaluable context. You also listen to it to learn about Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. And if you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the APN, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Well, that's all for this week, Mac. Uh, when we join next week, I will be a year older. I hope I'm much wiser, but if historical evidence is anything to go off of, not likely. Well, it's still a next gender, though, so you have that. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Colin. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.